Why would Christians use jokes to make a point? And what might satire uniquely reveal about the human imagination? These questions and more we will explore on today's episode. This is Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven, and I am E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. In this podcast, we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, including often misunderstood genres like satire, and we apply these stories to the real world that our creator and savior, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. And this is episode 30, How Can the Babylon Bee's Satire Reflect Our Crazy Reality with Frank Fleming? And I'm Zachary Russell, now a recognized contributor to the Babylon Bee. Yes, you heard that right. Earlier this week as we record this, I wrote a satirical headline that was chosen by the staff of the Babylon Bee. That was a really uh, high point of this week. And one of the writers developed it into a full article complete with an epic Photoshop. The title is Brilliant Trump Puts Himself on All Postage Stamps, Forcing Democrats to Push for Abolishing the USPS. Zach, I actually got to read this headline before it appeared on the site, and it appeared basically as you wrote it, despite my attempts over text messaging to say, oh, wait, 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 it would be funnier if you said this, or it'd be funnier if you just ended it here. And, th- and then they just published it as is, in which case I had to sit down and be humble and realize that the, uh, the masters <laughs> entered the house. They understood that this is funny as you wrote it. Thanks. You know, Stephen, this all started out from something you had posted on Facebook uh, about a week ago where you said, I have no opinion about the post office kerfuffle going on right now in the news about this whole mail-in ballot, you know, debate. So uh, I I credit you for thinking of this idea of like, well, okay, what's my take on mail-in ballots in the post office and all this stuff? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, what I actually did, um, understand, I do have an opinion on it now, but my post was more about everyone's rush to judgment. Oh, my stars, bad leader X is going to destroy the post office and democracy (laughs) has ended in America. And oh no, they're locking up the mailboxes and they're pulling them off the streets and we're all going to die. And some of that is just absolutely overwrought. And it's, it's not just one particular side or political faction that is vulnerable to that kind of alarmism understand. But in this case, I frankly lost respect for some of my friends who were jumping onto that or at least jumping onto me when I said, Okay, you all can have fun with this latest outrage du jour, but as for me and my house, I refuse to play the game. And everybody <laughs> got mad at me. Oh, you're enabling him. Like, no, I'm busy. I am moving. I've got two teenagers in the house now. I've got a book coming out. I've got podcasts to outline. I, have a life. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot join every single battle that everybody wants to fight, especially when it's based on memes and tweets and just everyone falling down and screaming like everything's on fire. Everything is on fire, but. Okay, in Christ, have some self-control. And listener, if you want to know my uh, opinion about this whole thing, personally, I'm fine with the post office ending because, number one, I never have a good experience there. But number two, I welcome our drone delivery overlords for all things mail and packages. I think that would be an awesome future to live in. You are part of the problem, Zach. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, I... I've been a subscriber for the to the Babylon Bee for a few months now, so I get to pitch headlines to them, and, and that's just been an awesome part of my day. Just great to think of a little, like a miniature story by headline. So when I was thinking about a joke about this whole post office thing, I thought back to this Babylon Bee joke earlier this year. Now, okay, this, this we're getting in the political realm here, just so you know, listener, we're, we're not going to make this a political podcast, but 
earlier this year, there was a joke where the B was talking about the impeachment hearings that were going on. And so they made this joke in surprise move, Trump supports the impeachment, forcing Democrats to end it. You know, and, and so it's this whole series of jokes they have about 4D chess or whatever. Uh, and so I, I just really love those because they're just so funny. It just kind of like makes fun of everything. And, and that was the case with this headline when I posted on Facebook and shared it with friends. It made both of my conservative and progressive friends laugh. Like, I think everyone could find something to laugh about in this article. Yeah. So let me just read one of the lines in here. It says, the new stamp dubbed the Trump stamp to be used on all pieces of mail features a smiling Donald Trump with the caption greatest president ever. And people react by saying, I will never send another piece of mail again. (laughs) So just imagining just like a really absurd future of like, what if the president put himself on a stamp? Like that would just be crazy. And with today's political climate, you know, everyone would just burn all their stamps or something like who knows. Honestly, though, it sounds like something he would do. (laughs) Right, exactly. Every person in this article and every way that everyone reacts, like at the end, it talks about the stamps quickly sell out and they're sold online for $3,000 a piece. It's like you could kind of see that happening, too. Is that the Steve Bannon selling them online for $3,000 a piece? That's a bit of of a political deep cut there, folks. Everyone kind of gets a little bit teased in this article. And as we record this, it has 923,000 shares. So we're, we're closing in on a million shares with this article. So it's, it's still like the top, uh, the number one trending article on their site right now, which is really fun. Babylon B subscriber Zachary Russell contributed to this report. <laughs> so uh, we're mentioning this because we've invited the Babylon Bee's senior writer, Frank J. Fleming, to come on the podcast today. And I'll be talking with Frank about the role of satire and speculative fiction for communicating hilarious truth about the real world. But first, before we jump into that, Stephen, what are some other funny articles from the Bee that you've loved? Well, I don't mind the political ones. I know that there are many critics of, oh, the Babylon Bee has gone political. And a lot of that, I think, is unfortunately based on the fact that Babylon Bee articles making fun of leftists are very popular among those types of conservative Trump-supporting relatives that some younger Christians just can't stand. So, alas, there's a bit of a guilt-by-association thing going on there. Aunt Marge from the church back home shared this article and thought it was real, so therefore there must be something wrong with the Babylon Bee. There's almost a bit of a, almost a legalism that can set in there. You know, suddenly the genre of satire is suspect because silly Aunt Marge takes it too seriously. I myself think that that is uh, unnecessary uh, to throw the Babylon Bee out with the bathwater. I think that you can uh, critique Aunt Marge and people who don't get satire while still appreciating satire, even the stuff that seems a little partisan in the direction of the right or in favor of the right. Because after all, they do criticize the left and the right, too. I Probably not equally. They do know their audience. But my favorite articles, though, have to be the ones that gently, affectionately lampoon Christians or Christian subculture. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how they started. Like Even the name of the site is kind of a reference to a very famous biblical city not known for being a very nice place. And the B, of course, being a reference to the, the, the sharp sting of satire or being spoofed or roasted. I like the ones yeah, about the, the Holy Spirit isn't allowed in church because the fog machine breaks, <laughs> or in particular the ones about the um, or the gritty reboot of Bible Man, or I think my, my all-time favorite, but especially because it's a bit of a, 
a double inside joke because one of the Babylon Bee writers, uh, Ethan Nicole, who also created the webcomic uh, phenomenon Axe Cop. So I, I knew him from that. Uh, he's now with the Babylon Bee, but in between, he actually worked on the much... Uh, oh, the VeggieTales. The, well, yeah. the ve- Netflix, ne- VeggieTales Netflixed, uh, <laughs> which uh, some people were not fans of, particularly because the character redesign. So he actually took an image of the character redesigns, and then they had a story saying that it was a marijuana plant character that they said was oh, going to join VeggieTales. And, and he Photoshopped it. <laughs> I think it was him who Photoshopped it. And it looked perfectly at home amongst the, uh, the new versions of the veggies. This was this dopey, obviously stoned looking expression on his face and the eyebrows and everything matched. And he had chosen a, a shot from the, uh, the VeggieTales Netflix reboot version where they were all just looking at him in shock and surprise, shocked and slightly embarrassed at the sight of the marijuana character. <laughs> I think that's my favorite because I would just stare at the photo. Not just the photo, y'all. Babylon B folks, we don't just read the headlines. We do click and we read the whole story <laughs> most of the time. We don't just look at the pretty pictures either. But I, I, I think that one is just hilarious uh, because it's, it's just absurdism. It doesn't even really make fun of Christians or subculture or veggie tales. Uh, it's just a ridiculous ad absurdum. And, and I, I, just, I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, I, I love that just the totally zany ones they come up with, it, especially that deal with just normal life, like family life or church life. There's this one, I, uh, Naomi and I quote this one all the time, where it says, mother returns home from women's retreat to giant smoking crater. <laughs> and uh, you know, in the article, the mom says, I only requested two things, keep the kids alive and don't burn the house down. Just two things. <laughs> So anytime Naomi goes anywhere, like we always joke about that. Like, am I going to come home to a giant smoking crater on the ground? So that one's great. But you know, at my church, I serve as the, uh, the tech guy. Like I'm the, one of the production guys that handles all the AV stuff. Oh my gosh. They have so many great ones. Like I feel seen, you know, by some of these headlines about the church tech guy and probably the best one ever. And this is way back from 2016. Uh, the headline is Church Tech Guy Completes Historic Perfect Service. <laughs> and it's just so great because no one notices when the service runs well. You know, you only notice when like a slide is out of place or a, a word is misspelled or whatever, you know, you get off track. You know, in the article, it says like the, the crowd erupts in applause, like which that would never happen. I just love it. It's so crazy. So it's a bit of a niche joke, particularly for those who have handled uh, the slideshows or the audio for a church service, but it helps us, and I think that's a good role of satire at its best, it helps us to see not we're not making fun of the church or making fun of the sound guy, but we're looking at a mirror that reflects ourselves back to us. And just like you explained, and that's the danger in, in possibly over-explaining the joke, but it helps particularly for folks who don't get satire or don't get the purpose of satire or suspect it somehow it helps us to see wait a minute like we really don't appreciate the sound guy like we we always notice like you said when something goes wrong but when something goes right we just assume that that is baseline expectation and so that helps me then to look not at someone else bad politician x or stupid alexandria Casio cortez (laughs) uh and, and instead i'm looking at myself which is a far more biblical posture of humility of laughing not at someone else in a, a bad-natured way, but laughing at myself. And even those little ways, maybe they're not sinful, but I would say that it's a bit of a shortcoming. Like, I, I don't appreciate the sound guy. I don't appreciate this person or that person or the, you know, the mom who holds everything together or any of those folks. 
Yeah, well, and I even love how a lot of their humor touches on theology and just, again, just really crazy ways. Like there's another tech guy one uh, where the headline is Calvinist tech guy assures church his mistakes were ordained before the foundation of the world. <laughs> hey, where's the yeah. lie, though? Where's the lie? <laughs> there, also, there's plenty of the fantastical edge in Babylon B headlines as well. When they touch on Middle Earth or Narnia or any of the other fandoms, they have plenty of jokes, for example, about Christians who are overly concerned about the Harry Potter series or things like that. Mm -hmm. From what I've seen, they always get their references fairly right. You know, they will hyphenate Spider-Man. They had a story recently about um, DC rebrands woman as a wonder person with a a certain anatomical component uh, based on this weird CNN headline that refused to say the word women, uh, stuff like that to me as a fan and as a, as a fantastical story creator and fan of those, uh, I appreciate that attention to detail. And it also helps to place this topic uh, firmly in the realm of the fantastical. This is uh, this is a side of those genres, a subgenre uh, with lots of overlap that we can do well to explore. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it's helped me in a lot of ways just kind of take a break a little bit or um, sort of loosen my grip on some certain pop cultural, I'll dare say, idols that I hold. So I I grew up as a Star Wars kid. And when the Disney sequels came out, man, I had a lot of uh, I, I had a lot of things I did not like about them. And there, I can't find the headline, but there was there was one Babylon Bee headline about you know, how we're all just arguing about space wizards with colorful laser swords or whatever. It's like, you know, we're, we're arguing about how could that possibly happen? You know, when we're talking about a fantastical story, it's just great. Like I think about that one all the time that like, okay, I need to just relax about everything I get too hot and bothered about with star Wars. But, um, you know, for you, our listener, we'd, we'd love to know what's your favorite Babylon B headline. What's one that you think about all the time. So send us a note podcast at lorehaven.com. Let us know what you think about that. We're about to go into the interview with Frank. Before we do that, why don't we hear from our sponsor? Absolutely. We have another sponsor for this Fantastical Truth episode. And this episode is sponsored by author J.J. Johnson. He just released his fantasy novel, A King's Return. You need to go to the show notes and look at this. If not, for the premise, but also because it has an amazing cover. I'm not sure who the cover designer is, but we really do need to give them props. And that's not something the sponsorship text told me to say. That's something I decided I was going to say. This is the description of A King's Return by J.J. Johnson. Quote, Islandia has been without a high king for a generation. Eloy, the last high king, embarked upon a journey shrouded in mystery after a cryptic warning found from a long-lost prophet promised a return of ancient dark forces. Eloy had placed the rule of Islandia and the five kingdoms in the hands of his closest friend, King Richard. After 30 years, most have long since stopped looking for Eloy's return or the darkness foretold. Many under Richard's rule have grown discontent and jealous of his appointment. All hope for peace is lost and chaos reigns after the icy hand of an assassin takes the life of King Richard and plucks him from the throne. What now? Will Prince Titus, Richard's son, have the strength to hold Islandia together or will it descend into war over the High King's throne? The kingdom is divided by the sword as each must decide where their loyalties lie. End quote. And you can go to our show notes where we will have the link to the Amazon page for this book and that great cover. And you can explore more of J.J. Johnson's world at kingdomsofilandia.com. That's Islandia, like island with an I-A at the end. 
get all of those links in the show notes. And we appreciate that sponsorship from JJ Johnson for this fantasy novel, A King's Return. Now let's head into that one-on-one interview with Zach here and Frank Fleming of the Babylon Bee fame and a sci-fi writer in his own right. Frank J. Fleming is the author of science fiction, fantasy, and satire. A senior writer for the Babylon Bee, he's known for hard-hitting stories like really interesting theological discussion ruined by someone pulling out a Bible verse, and engineer frustrated at inability to tell responsible citizens from train robbers, as well as report the squirrels are up to something. And if you follow the Babylon Bee podcast, you know that Frank is the voice of most of the Trump jokes. Frank started out blogging political commentary on imao.us, which stands for In My Arrogant Opinion, which is a brilliant title. His political satire was featured on the New York Post. He says he wrote satire because it didn't require any research. He could just make stuff up. In 2016, and he got sick of politics like the rest of us. Now he's focused on writing speculative fiction. The best part about sci-fi and fantasy is he can just once again make stuff up and not have to do any research. Frank and his wife, Sarah, are raising four children near Central Texas. Frank, welcome to Fantastical Truth. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so here's kind of our evergreen question. How did you first discover Christian truth and fantastical fiction? So how did you learn about Christian faith? And then how did you first discover a fantastical story? First one's a little bit easier. I was raised Catholic, pretty much a practicing Catholic. I met who would be my wife. She first brought me to uh, Church of Christ. And uh, then I, I started to, to uh, question a bit some of the Catholic teachings. About that same time, um, let's see, it was 2005, Pope John Paul II died. And then I just questioned a bit more. And just some things didn't seem to line up to me with Catholic Church versus the Bible. And so then uh, I got uh, baptized that year at a little church in Florida. You know, it's not like wasn't a believer and was a believer. It's just part of the journey there, though. It just took a different path. Uh, for sci-fi fantasy, when I first got into that, I mean, that's that seems to go back even further. Um, I just uh, I used to read a lot as a real little kid. And then for some reason I stopped. Uh, like I remember like Dragonlance. Mm-hmm. Read a lot as a little kid. And then for some reason I stopped as much in high school and I had to come back to it later. But I've always wanted to create uh, even more than read. But as like uh, I always uh, hear a lot of people say, you have to you have to read a lot if you want to write well. And so uh, I, I do uh, I read a wide variety now and try to constantly be reading. Nice. And do you remember like the first Christian fantastical story you read? <laughs> it, it's funny. I read a uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, which was a very Catholic one. But that, it was interesting to see the mix of uh, sort of religious faith and uh, science fiction. And I'm trying to think, I don't think a lot of what I read was as Christian focused, but when you don't have characters, you don't think uh, of eternal things, of uh, religion. Uh, I don't relate to them as well, and so I'd like to see more characters like that. That's cool. Well, let's uh, jump into our our main topic about the Babylon Bee. So I remember first discovering the bee uh, when it was uh, under Adam Ford. It was a lot better back then, like everyone says, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everybody misses Adam Ford. (laughs) But I remember thinking, wow, a, a Christian version of the onion and you know, and, th- and that's kind of a funny thought, by the way. I feel like we do that a lot as Christians, like, hey, it's a Christian version of this or that. 
uh, like, and now we have a Christian version of Kanye West. You know? Yeah, yeah. They they did a they did a joke recently. Like, if you like this, and then here's the lame <laughs> Christian version. Of course, the last one was, if you like the Onion, try the Babylon Bee. <laughs> but you know, it's funny because I I always love the Onion, and I I'm more conservative, but the the Onion leans more liberal. Mm-hmm. But I I've always enjoyed it because the jokes were good, and and even when they challenged my own views, I still enjoyed it. As one example, there was this article. It was some, you know, tragic mass shooting had happened, okay? And then uh, there was talk in the uh, the political leaders about having a gun ban or something, and then gun sales started skyrocketing because of that. So The Onion put out this article, oh, after devastating gorilla attack, nation sees shortage of attack gorillas after record sales of gorillas oh. or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think about that a lot. It, if nothing else, it's kind of a silly story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think uh, I think that's an influence to my satirical writing is my favorite onion ones are not the political ones, but the absurdist ones. And right. uh, and then so I, I try to because to me, uh, writing political humor for a uh, an audience that agrees with you, it, it's sort of like uh, writing humor with easy mode on because uh, like because they agree with you, they'll give it to you. even if It wasn't that clever or that funny. So uh, I'd like to write things a bit more challenging than that. I think a lot of times if you write, if you write politically, it just kind of says, oh, what you already believe, you're really smart to believe and people don't believe that, they're dumb. I don't, I don't think that's as helpful, even though that's, that's what a lot of it ends up as. Yeah, and so I, I like how the B has become much more than that. It just kind of makes fun of everything and everyone. Um, and I, and I, I think where I first saw that in action was, I don't know if this was a series or it was just kind of, I piece it together in my mind, but there were all these articles about different worship styles in Protestant churches. And so there was one about Pentecostal church having the, the laser show is broken, so they have to cancel service. And then and another one, the fog machine breaks, so the Holy Spirit can't come in. And that's, that's Kyle Mann, who's now the, <laughs> you know, the head, you know, the main writer. Uh, that was his very first article. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, another one was a water slide put in, I, I forget whose church that was. And then, and I, I think it was Presbyterian church, the motion detecting lights turn off during worship. And so it just takes no prisoners basically, but in a kind way, not a mean way. Yeah. I think what attracts a lot of people, that's how I first noticed the Babylon Bee is, is the humor on those very specific Christian topics where you're not going to find that at the onion because it's too Christian specific. It's, you know, a lot of it's not, you know, not going to go to a broad audience. That's kind of a challenge with it. Those are, I think, what kind of give us what make Babylon be unique, but it's the political ones that tend to go viral and really uh, take off. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I learned recently that there have been some Babylon B articles that had more web traffic than CNN. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're surprised sometimes. Uh, like, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize how well the site competed with all like uh, the big names. And it's, uh, and traffic's been growing for a while. I think we, like everybody, we kind of got a hit with COVID just because I don't know if that changes people's uh, reading habits when they're not (laughs) in the office or something. So what do you think makes the satire of the Babylon Bee work? Why do satire, why do people, why are people attracted to that? Well, I mean, some of it is we're hitting from a different angle. You're not going to get other places. That's, that's something that's going to appeal to some people is having a different political angle. And then I think other is just the, the Christian's perspective where we have nice niche humor that you're not going to get anywhere else. You know, we have a nicer edge. I mean, we go, there's a few things we'll really pull out the knives for, but 
it, it's I like to think it's more good natured. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to shock you or anything. And, uh, you know, that, and it's harder to pull that off and do good humor. It's easier to do the shocking humor and get it laughed that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be easy just to make uh, worship leaders skinny jean jokes forever. But uh, I guess you can only do so many of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, And that's sort of the problem. And sometimes you wonder, like, it always feels like you, you ran out of jokes on a certain topic. But uh, you got to keep hitting at it. And, you know, we put out, I don't know how many. It's like uh, five or six articles a day. Usually about half of those are Kyle. He is kind of a machine on that. Um, but now we have a, a decent number of other regular writers. So uh, we do keep the articles coming. And so how many do you write a week on average? Uh, usually five. I usually write one each weekday. I know there's some issues that you say you really bring the knives out for, some some topics mm-hmm. you, you guys really care about. So why not just publish that as like an op-ed? You know, why tell it slant? as Emily Dickinson famously said in her poem about that, you know, why use satire? I think because it's more entertaining, it's people are a little bit tired of just getting lectured at, and it's just, how do you come at it away? That's at least, you know, people actually read it and uh, pay attention. And I think satire does that right now. It's um, just culturally, we're more sarcastic people now. You know, for me, the, the, the role of humor is that it kind of makes life more interesting and especially in 2020 like it's been a pretty terrible year it helps us kind of see things clear i think sometimes too that i i think i've heard Kyle Mann mention before that you, you know when you tell a joke you can get straight to the point you don't have to couch it in a lot of disclaimers you don't have to say well i'm not saying this and i'm not saying that you can just go straight to the punch right yeah, and uh, usually to get the joke, you really have to uh, analyze things well, try to get to the core of it. Like, why are people arguing over this? And if, you know, you have to search the basically the core truth, and then that's where you're, you're, the good joke is. And you help people realize, you know, maybe what's beneath everything. So we live kind of in a hypersensitive time, right? <laughs> and and everything is at risk of getting canceled at at any time. So, do you take that into consideration when writing jokes? Like, how do you deal with that? We, we try not to because we don't want to be a part of that. We're not ones trying to push the envelope either. We're not trying to shock people. But at the same time, we don't want to be part of this uh, where it's like everybody has to walk on eggshells and feel scared to say what they believe. But we're we're in a pretty good position. Our big fear sometimes is if like one of like uh, big platforms turned against us. But because of subscribers, uh, we can stay afloat just on that. So that's why actually the the subscriptions have been an important part of making at least making the Babylon B feel secure and not have to worry too much. I think so much of what's going on with uh pushback I've seen personally on the Babylon B even from people I know is that you know sometimes it gets kind of close to home. Like that onion joke about, you know, the attack gorillas selling out. That kind of hits close to home here in Texas where everyone has like three or four guns apiece. Yeah, And it's like, hey, don't take away my attack gorilla, man. I need that to fight all the other attack gorillas. But <laughs> and that, you know, definitely mocked part of my culture as a Texan. And so I think sometimes with, with satire, with humor, people feel like they're being mocked. And uh, there's this great C.S. Lewis quote at the beginning of Screwtape Letters where he says, above all else, the devil cannot stand to be mocked. The devil is so proud that he can't handle any jokes about himself. But I, I really think being able to laugh at yourself is such an underrated skill nowadays. And, and even if it's someone else that's starting the joke about you, I think you have to kind of laugh along with it, don't you? 
Yeah, and I, I think that's where actually we can provide a benefit is uh, everybody's so serious right now. You hear all these people talk about like how horrible things are when it's like, I don't feel like people have perspective and it's nice to kind of take a light approach to all these things going on because you know nothing really is the end of the world. Nothing of here is going to uh, you know really harm us and we have to uh, keep a perspective. I, I think it's very important certainly, uh, for Christians to not despair. And I think keeping a sense of humor is a good part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think there's even a role for kind of dark humor, gallows humor. I, I've been through some pretty traumatizing things in my life where, you know, humor is kind of how I joke about it, but you know, it's not always for everyone. One thing I joked about in a Facebook group was about, so I'm diabetic and I made a joke about that. And someone else was like, Oh, you know, my father passed away from diabetes. And so I don't think that's very funny. And so I had to kind of think for a second, well, okay, that joke wasn't for that person, but it was for me. And I just had to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that rubbed you the wrong way. I wasn't obviously thinking of your father because I didn't even know about that person before I made that joke. But the interesting thing was, as I talked to that person, we were able to kind of see each other a little more clearly. And she saw how, for me, that's how I get through something as awful as a disease, like a chronic disease. I just have to make fun of it and, and even just make fun of myself a little bit because you can't get through life if you take yourself too seriously. Something else I know you've said elsewhere, Frank, is that having jokes about politicians and politics, that helps us be a little more discerning, doesn't it? And, and be a little more skeptical about politicians. Uh, yeah, I wish everybody could just come together and say, hey, let's be skeptical about all these guys. But instead, it's usually like, this guy's bad, but and then you got to prop up this other guy in response. <laughs> you know, get a bit frustrated about the the DNC uh, thing right now where everybody's trying to, for a while, they er, pretty much everybody ridiculed Biden. And now you got a good, good segment trying to say, oh, you, you, like, oh, wow, look at him give this speech, which is like, it's like any politician, you know, can have someone write a speech and read read it. It doesn't mean anything. And we need to, we need to take all these people off of a pedestal, not just, you know, some of them. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, so that kind of leads us to the other thing that happened this week, which is the Twitter apocalypse of satire. So the, the Babylon Bee and some other satirical accounts like Titania McGrath, Jarvis DuPont and the onion, actually just kidding, not the onion, but all these accounts were suspended from Twitter. So that was a kind of a fascinating thing to watch. Well, so the the funny thing is, is you and I have talked elsewhere that this happened right when the headline that I wrote for the B got published, and I and I don't know what which came first, the uh, the Twitter ban or that article, but it was just interesting that that happened at the same time. Yeah, just as it went up, but that one actually did really really well. I think it probably got more viewership because it happened. <laughs> you know, we got a ton of publicity for it. So. <laughs> And it's kind of one of those things, you know, no publicity is bad publicity because I think it was the Babylon Bee itself was trending on Twitter uh, shortly after that. Yeah, because that was a pretty blatant thing where it's like, obviously, these guys aren't spam. And that's one of the things that frustrated me when people get banned on Twitter is they're kind of inscrutable exactly what they're complaining about. They'll just say, like, here's a like a link to a giant list of things you can get banned for. Uh, What you did is somewhere on there. (laughs) <laughs> and um you know and so we're trying to figure out what's going on and they said something about like the email was like spam or something now th- they just later said it was just an algorithm uh mishap and we didn't do anything wrong but it, and it only la- i forgot how long it was it wasn't that long we were banned but it, it 
yeah, it, it got that got quite a bit of publicity because you know if that happens to any like you know other like uh, news platforms or something, I mean that's that's a big deal. Well, and like I said, with those other accounts that got banned, you know, th- those are not right-wing accounts, although they kind of make fun of the same things, like some of the identity politics stuff. Andrew Doyle, who is the actual writer of the satirical Titania McGrath, he really made a lot of noise about this. And he had an interesting quote where he said, only a tyrant executes the court jester. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, and it's, you know, even that is kind of hyperbole because it's like, well, okay, it's just Twitter, you know, mm-hmm. but that is where that is kind of the marketplace of ideas now. It's where everyone goes to have an argument over whatever. Now, I, I think what happened with him was a little bit different. I don't know if they claim that was just a mishap or what, but uh, we've had like people try to say we're more sinister, you know, like call us satire in quotes, like we're trying to trick people. Because we've, we've had articles that have, you know, gotten spread where people didn't realize they were satire. It's funny though, some of our uh, most widely spread ones were spread by the left. We had one where uh, it's right after, I forget, it was like uh, Trump got criticized Christianity Today and, and said how much he'd done for, like done more for Christian than any other president. We instead wrote an article where he said, Trump saying, I've done more for Christianity than Jesus. <laughs> and that got spread as, it, 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 it actually, it did do that great as, you know, because of our audience, sometimes when we go after Trump, it, it doesn't always go as well if it's very pointed right. at him. But uh, then it got picked up by people on the left who thought it was real and that one got just tons of traffic and we had another where i think it was liberty university saying they put in a uh a nice photoshop of him uh, putting in a uh, stained glass window of trump and that <laughs> one got shared as real as well i remember the photoshop on that one that was pretty amazing yeah um and, and i love the photoshop that i assume ethan did for the the headline i wrote about the trump stamp you know that was just like i could see it in my head as i was writing that headline i'm like oh man if this gets picked up that the Photoshop's going to be incredible. <laughs> yeah, but but there's been implications that we're trying to like uh, make people angry on the right by being fake news, where they can't, you know, where we're not, where they, right. we're trying, we're not trying to trick people, where we're, they don't know that we're satire, and it, it, it's just kind of crazy. I, I saw this whole like study they did where they took a number of our headlines, but they changed around so they weren't funny sounding, and they just asked people, "Do you think this is real or not?" It, it was it was it was so bizarre. That is weird. Uh, I, yeah. It's a weird way to do it. Yeah, well, you know, you said something earlier about how when we make these jokes about politicians, the, the value is that it kind of helps us come together and take these leaders off of their pedestals and just say, hey, can we just be on the same page for a minute? And that politics is kind of silly and it's kind of crazy. And the, the, the best thing about that article or the, uh, well, someone else wrote the article. I just wrote the headline about the Trump stamp. The the best part about that was I have family members that are pro-Trump and family members that are anti-Trump, and they both laughed at it. You know, there was something in that article that everyone could kind of enjoy, you know, just imagining Trump putting himself on a stamp, like that's pretty hilarious, or or imagining people burning down the post office because of that. Yeah, I have to congratulate you because that that's that's the sweet spot we aim for is one where it's like... Not sure if we're making fun of Trump or we're laughing with Trump, and then you can get it shared by both people on the right and left, and that's that's always it's always nice when you write something everybody can enjoy. Yeah, well, and like you said, it kind of hits that that spot of absurdist. Like, mm-hmm. wait, that would never happen. Wait, could that happen? You know, and that's that's kind of the fun thing about satire is it, it it's its own variety of speculative fiction, right? It's like this uh, alternative reality simulation. You know, like what if this actually happened? You know, what would happen next? 
And so it's kind of a fun way to uh, just explore fantastical stories in its own way. Yeah, and that that's to me. I found a big part of writing humor, uh, especially um, when I uh, first did like some radio and stuff. Uh, I was never very felt like I was very good at just talking about like, oh, here's some funny stuff I wrote. But I found it was much easier if I was playing a character because then I, I'm not thinking what's something funny. I'm thinking if I actually believe like this, what would I say in this situation? It's actually an easier question to answer and usually leads to a lot of humor. Well, let's talk about your sci-fi character, Rico Vargas. He's really just Rico. The, the Vargas is just a, a, a fake last name he uses a lot. Oh, nice. So he's the main character of the Super Ego series. There's two books out now. And it's uh, the summary of this book is, Can a genetically engineered psychopath grow a conscience, get the girl, and save the galaxy? Two out of three ain't bad. So we've got a story about an intergalactic hitman with no morality. And so, uh, you know, you talked about playing characters. So is this, uh, is this an autobiography, Frank? You know, is there something, <laughs> something of you in this character? I think everybody has a little bit of a psychopath in them. They can understand <laughs> where they just want to turn things off and not, you know, and we all have that urge to just like, let's not care about this other people's feelings and things like that. And so it's, it's tapping a bit into that. I, I think the main concept uh, for me was uh, coming up with basically contrived science fiction character where morality has absolutely no use for him in any way whatsoever. He doesn't worry about consequences from the law. He has no conscience. So if he does something bad, he doesn't get a bad feeling for it. And so uh, he's definitely a nihilist. And then it's just, well, make a character like that. Well, what does motivate him? Why, what does he try to do? What does he live for? And you know, what problems is he going to run into? And uh, that was basically concept for the character. And uh, I remember I, I, I wrote, I started out as like a short story to back on my blog back in 2005. And at the time, I think I was watching, feel bad, I was more like TV influence than book influence. I was watching like a 24 and House. Mm-hmm. And in ways, those were influences because House is a cranky guy who just says what he thinks and you can have fun with that. Who doesn't really care, you know, how that affects other people. And then... um uh, just like 24, we're just, you're constantly ending things on some big cliffhanger. And, and, uh, since I was wa- writing it a piece at a time, the short story, uh, I kind of emulated that though. Uh, when I did do a full size novel, I completely rewrote it from the ground up. Yeah. It's been quite the page turner. I'm, I'm in the middle of the book now. It's been really fun. Um, and it, it's funny, like there, there's so many lines I've highlighted just cause they made me laugh. So I, I like that this is a sci-fi action adventure but it's not simply, you know, John Wick in space. It, it's got a lot of heart to it. The main character kind of reminds me a little bit of Dexter, that TV series, that it's this person trying to become normal or trying to appear normal. Like, you know, something's different about him, but he's trying to kind of fit in. Yeah, it's funny because, like I said, I, I first wrote 2005. I forget when Dexter came out. It was a little bit after that. When I watched the first season, I was like, oh, man, I totally copied this. Because <laughs> there was a lot similar, except Dexter's a serial killer. He has a need to kill. Rico doesn't have a need to kill. He just doesn't care, and it's something he's good at. Yeah, but even just that that struggle of you know trying to find a morality, or at least trying to fit in with the human world. I you know this is obviously an extreme version of that, but I think everyone can kind of relate to that. It's a universal desire to not be an outcast. You know, Rico's doing it for his job as a hitman, but all of us kind of hit that point where we feel like, so oh, something's a little different about me. I better try to figure out 
what I need to do to fit in with this group, right? Yeah, and I explore that a bit in the sequel. And also, uh, there's a prequel short story. It's I think it's, you can read off my website. And I explore that a bit more where, uh, to him, it's like he has a lot of problems around people. It, it's it's uh, frustrating for him. But at the same time, something he hasn't quite realized, though, is that he's lonely. And I think that's that's the way you know all people need to be connect with other people, even a, a psychopath. Now, I like how you have him uh, get introduced to this woman, Diane, who's a cop, and how he has no uh, use for religion. He's not totally against it, but he kind of makes fun of it. But it, it seems to kind of touch a nerve with her, doesn't it? Yeah. And that, well, that's the thing. He, he's a very nihilistic atheist. And so anyone who's not nihilistic, he kind of looks down on. To him, it's like a the average atheist is still kind of religious to him because they, they believe there's some reason to go on and do the things they do. And he finds it all, you know, rather pointless in a way. Like a, a bit of a respect for religion. At least they understand more their irrational beliefs or at least more cognizant of them. Yeah. And then, you know, she's a character that wants to do the right thing, but kind of struggles with kind of her own, her own inner demons. And so Rico kind of finds that, confusing in a way it's like well why don't you just you know beat this guy up or shoot that guy like what's the big deal like why are you you know getting kind of in twists about it but i love the lines in here like i liked her she seemed pretty smart hopefully not so smart i'd have to kill her and then his uh his ai assistant asks him do you plan to kill her well that would be a little forward for a first date (laughs) (laughs) so you know frank this is definitely my type of humor just this dark humor it's very snarky and, and kind of sarcastic, but it's it's enjoyable and uh, it it kind of draws you in. It it disarms you a little bit. You know, you kind of sneak in some of these bigger questions about what is it that makes us human? What does it mean to have a soul? And so I, I like that you you don't front load that. You just sort of sprinkle it throughout the book. Yeah, I uh, I mean, one of the main reasons to write fiction is because I want to write about bigger things than politics. And uh, so it's kind of a way to explore some bigger ideas. It is a bit like some of the humor is a bit dark. It, it's, it almost surprised me. It's like that my first uh, novel is like first person from a psychopath, uh, since I tend to do lighter, more fun humor, which you'd see in my other novels. But, you know, people have fun with it. I mean, that's one thing I was surprised by the reaction. This was my first attempt of doing like something long uh, that was serious. But the main reaction I I get is like how funny it is. Yeah. And there's a second book out, Super Ego Fathom, which is, I understand it, it's all about indoctrinating readers into your views on tax policy. Is that correct? (laughs) Well, that that was a joke on (laughs) uh, off of a, I wrote for uh, Sarah Hoyt's blog, uh, like how to indoctrinate people. But it's, I mean, when I write something, I mean, the main thing is it needs to be fun. I mean, I mean, the main thing I'm aiming for is a page turner, especially with a super ego fathom. I was trying to really get that where it's like every grips you and pulls you through and you have to you know, finish one chapter. You're compelled to start the next one. You put a theme on top of that. But uh, I think the main thing is, is a really like a, a plot driven story. And then, uh, like I said, a fun dialogue. I, like I really love writing dialogue. Um, it takes me a lot of discipline to just not write a bunch of dialogue with like very little description. Now, Super Ego Fathom, it's still about Rico. It's his story, but it, it sort of shifts, right, in that he's trying to be a hero, but he doesn't have kind of an inner sense of what heroism is or what morality is, like because he's it was genetically engineered out of him. So how does he 
go about that? Well, yeah, it's exploring his attempt as idea of what it means to be a hero, but and whether it will do anything for him because it's he has the same. Okay, if he's a villain, he doesn't care. Uh, it doesn't mean anything to him. But if he's a hero, he also doesn't care. I mean, saving people means nothing to him. But he's trying uh, after the end of the first book to like do something different and see if it accomplishes anything. This touches on a lot of things that I think about. Just this idea of how do you follow the right way, even if you don't feel like going that way. And uh, I, I have a very good friend from college that we talked about the Christian faith and the Bible all the time. And, but he would just say, you know, at the end of the day, I just, I don't feel like God exists. Like I don't feel anything inside of me that tells me it's true. If if I could just experience something, you know, supernatural, I would probably believe in it, but I'm really lacking that, that kind of inner sense of that it's, it's real. And as we got to talking more, I said, well, what, what is it you want to feel? And he's like, well, I'd want to feel that if God really loves me, that I would kind of feel that love. and as we talk further, he's like, you know, I, I never heard my father say, I love you. Oh, wow. And I thought, wow, well, th- well, there we go. You know, just that, that kind of vacuum inside of him, it, it sort of closed off that, that feeling perhaps. So I, I like that super ego and in the, the follow-up kind of addresses that, that, Hey, maybe we all have something a little bit sideways in us, a little bit broken, but God calls us out of that into something amazing and, and supernatural, but but maybe we can't, you know, always relate to it like other people can. Like you, you see these people that have these very clear sense of what God wants them to do in their life, and other people are like, I just read the Bible and I, you know, I just try to make sense of it, but I I don't always feel the right way to go. Yeah, I I think I get into that a bit with Rico because I mean, for his perspective, I mean, he he's he's a nihilist. Uh, everything's just this abyss to him. And what happens, uh, not to get too much spoilers, the first book, it's, it's almost like his whole life. It's just been this big black void. And then there's just one little like match was lit once and he saw it for an instant. And that is, and now he's just like, is there, is there something more, but you know, he has much less feeling of like the divine than like anyone else. Cause is there, as you say, like, to me, I don't think something supernatural would convince me. A lot of people think about that, like if you had some saw some big miracle. But I always think of like uh, Peter from the Bible, all the people who were directly with Jesus, and they saw all the miracles, and they still doubted. It's not what we see, I think, with our eyes that really convince us. It, it's something you have to find the things that's inside of what you see every day. Uh, that's also something I say I explore very much in my uh, novel Side Quest. Yeah, so tell us about that. I, I haven't read that yet, but I understand that's more in the fantasy genre. Yeah, that it's uh, maybe you say urban fantasy. Um, I'd say it, it, in a way it's, it's my more Christian novel, though uh, it doesn't mention God or Jesus or anything even once in it. It's the, uh, what it is, yeah, the main character, he... Just uh, on way to work, on normally he's a just programmer, finds a sword in a field given to him by fairies, and then he starts to notice weird things like his boss is a demon, realizes his girlfriend works for like this evil force and stuff. And it's not that he's the only one who notices it, it it's just he's the only one who thinks any of this is uh, outlandish. And it, it's just he's starting to realize all these weird things in the world that no one else thinks is even interesting to note. 
I had a lot of fun with that one. It was very much to me a self-contained novel. I don't think I, I plan to do a sequel to that one. Yeah, I see a lot of echoes of that in the Christian experience in that you learn a lot of new things about the world that you didn't see before, you know, you had Christ in your life. And I, I remember going through that very clearly in college and just sort of having this almost like a deprogramming experience of things I had come to believe because of secular culture, the things that I just always took for granted, but I, I was a very young Christian in, in college. And so as I start to study the Bible, I'm like, wow, life is a lot different than I thought it was but now it's making a lot more sense. And so it's interesting how you said that, that this is like a, a Christian novel without being overtly Christian, but it, it definitely touches on at least that experience. Is it, does it kind of reflect anything else in the Christian experience? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's part of the idea is that we're constantly surrounded by the fantastic and it's just, we don't notice it. I think you see this a lot, especially when you have children, you see a little kid, how they how they just look at absolutely everything with such wonder and awe. And <laughs> yeah. the reason they do uh, is because they see the world more honestly, more clearly than us. It's not, you know, and eventually we just learn to not notice things as much and we kind of close and make our world more narrow. And uh, I think it's, it's important sometimes to just really see what's around you and all the miracles in your life every day. And, you know, it's, it, it's there's like you're surrounded by them but you you cut yourself off from them and that's especially like all the people talk about like how horrible things are and how much they despair it's just that they're not you know they're they're choosing their focus on these few negative things and just you know uh, ignoring all the uh, all the wonderful things in their life well frank i know you said elsewhere that what made you want to walk away from full-time political commentary was the realization that there are more important things in life than politics like your family. So I, we want to hear about your family in just a moment. But, but tell us about some of the early writing that you did in, in this kind of political space. I understand you had a book called Punch Your Inner Hippie. So is that where having uh, an inner psychopath hitman comes in handy? Well, that, that was that was like a joke uh, self-help book uh, where it was like, here, here's how to like, everybody has this hippie inside them and you got to learn how to punch that hippie. <laughs> but I think I had some good points in that because I, I mentioned about, uh, I think I'd like tank of awesomeness you have to build. And, and one was like armor of the tank is your gratitude where it's like, you know, you have to learn you know, to like the things you're given and not just complain all the time. Because of course, hippies whine all the time. <laughs> and so to fight that, you have to learn to be thankful for all the things in your life. Just imagine if anytime you're about to complain about something, imagine explaining it to like a caveman and think <laughs> if they would think like, you know, oh, I can't find the charger on my phone. It's like, would that be something they would think was like an actual problem? Oh, that that's so true. And uh, I saw one of your earliest works in this uh, political space was all the way back in 2002 called a realistic plan for world peace, AKA nuke the moon. So I like that there's a little bit of sci-fi there, a little bit of politics, like t tell us about that. Yeah, that was my first piece I wrote on uh, my blog that took off and uh, I still, a lot of people know me as the nuke the moon guy. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's a well set out plan. I almost feel like Trump is actually putting it into place. The idea is if uh, you act really crazy, and people are going to leave you alone. And so that's my plan for world peace. It's like, we got all these nukes sitting around. We're not doing anything with them. What's something we can nuke that wouldn't kill anybody or hurt anybody, but uh, could intimidate the enemy. And so I said like, you know, you nuke the moon. It's very, and I found out later they actually had some plans to do that in the fifties. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, well, now we have a space force, so maybe we'll see it happen. <laughs> yeah, well, I it, hope we, so. We'll soon be able to actually implement it. And uh, also, I said like we have all these national parks that most of them no one bothers with. We can nuke one of them because if like people are like, oh, they'll even nuke themselves. <laughs> Think nothing of us. Well, I'm very familiar with with what you've said about how politics can just be a drag on the soul, and and at some point you just have to realize, hey, it, it's not the most important thing in life. There are more important things like family. And so, so tell us about your family. You're, you're a father of four and, uh, and you, you guys are homeschoolers, which we're, we're very uh, friendly towards homeschoolers here on this podcast. So tell us about your family. Uh, well, I have, uh, four kids, uh, see, I'm mean, a girl boy, girl boy. My oldest is, uh, she'll turn 10 in October. It'll be a decade of being a parent. And then, uh, my youngest, he's only 18 months and we've been, uh, homeschooling for, uh, an, well, we've been homeschooling since they've been schooling. My wife's plan is always to do that. And I just feel lucky I've been able to, um, we've been able to, you know, arrange that because, you know, it's not always an option for every parent. Um, though I now a lot more, I guess, are having to figure out a way to make it happen because uh, it's just uh, the mm-hmm. school situation's gotten so crazy lately. And as I understand it, your youngest son, Winchester, has Down syndrome. Yes. He, uh, that was a little bit of a surprise for us. Uh, well, because we didn't do the genetic test, uh, we had a we had a bad experience. That that you know they have like this blood test now, where about mm-hmm. like twelve weeks does like a genetic test. And one thing is you can find out uh, the gender like much earlier now at twelve weeks. Uh, that came out I think before our uh, our first two children. Like we didn't have it with our oldest, but we found with our second we we're having a boy through that test. But with our th- third child uh we found she a girl on that test it also said she had trisomy 13 which is uh, a very uh extreme disorder uh most likely uh she had that she wouldn't live past a year and that was a really tough thing to have hanging over you on a pregnancy that's one of those where it's like well we would have loved you know trisomy 21 down syndrome instead of that but uh luckily it ended up being a false positive uh, and though we decided, you know, since, you know, we were just getting it for gender, really, is all we wanted to, you know, a little bit earlier, uh, we decided just to not do that test with our fourth one. So that's when it was a bit of a surprise when he was born, we found out uh, he had Down syndrome. But at the same time, by not taking the test, we kind of acknowledged, you know, that anything could happen. So it's, it was like a surprise, but not, I guess. I, I You know, it, it hit me real quick because I wasn't prepared for it for like a few seconds like oh this could change all my future plans and I realized oh yeah I don't have any future plans other than take provide for my kids <laughs> and uh my wife did seem to face her for a moment where the uh, the doctor went over to her and said uh uh we think your son has down syndrome he says okay can I hold him he's like oh I just want to make sure you heard me I kind of dropped a bomb on you it's like yeah I got it can I hold him <laughs> and so uh but it, it's you know, it's a little bit different. It's just, but right now he's just a baby and it doesn't really seem as real. I feel like it's going to be more of an impact when he gets older. Yeah. My mother was a special ed teacher for a long time. So I've, I've grown up knowing a lot of kids with Down syndrome and autism and other kind of special needs situations. So, um, yeah, I just, I love kids like that. And, and we've had some very close friends that were told with the blood test, the doctor said, okay, your, uh, your results are in. Uh, the embryo has Down syndrome. So when would you like to schedule the abortion? Oh boy! <laughs> and and they were just like, wait, 
say that again, but in two different sentences, you know, like not in the same sentence. And then, um, they're like, well, we're not, we're not going to go that route. And come to find out it was a false positive. It's similar to your, uh, your third, uh, child there. And so they, they just talk about that all the time. We, we were given that option when it was false information. And, but even if it was correct information, like, does that make that any better? Yeah. I mean, we, we had much better doctor because, um, because when we had the false positive, well, you know, that was the blood test and it's decently accurate, but, uh, you could do an amniocentesis, probably pronounce that wrong, but there's a little bit of risk to the child though, with that one. And, and he was like, well, you know, is the diagnosis going to change your plans at all? And we're like, no. Uh, so it's like, well, I wouldn't recommend you do it then because, um, you know, it, it, I guess it's just a different perspective, which I find alien. It's because, I mean, that was a, that was the hardest thing still in my life was preparing for maybe having a child who was only going to live a little while. And I don't know how you prepare for that, but at the same time, uh, that's life. That's what everything's about. What, what are you living for exactly other than, other than this? You know, circling back to the Babylon Bee, I know that this is one of the many hot topics that the bee has addressed because it it is such a serious issue that you sort of have to expose the bad ideas that have you know led to these sorts of medical consultations that just take your breath away and and you have to sort of poke fun at it because every life is precious i think back to my uh, see great great grandmother who came here all the way from Austria, Germany in the 1890s, she was one of 13 kids. You know, and back then you had a lot of kids, first of all, because they valued children uh, so much more than, than modern culture does. But then second of all, you didn't know how many of your kids would live. And so life was just so in the balance all the time. And it, it's like now we don't really value life. We value comfort. Yeah, it's it, it's crazy, and I don't think people realize how big a problem that is because it's like you see in a lot of countries now where they're dying out because they're not having enough children, and I, I think a lot of that is just selfishness. It's like we think about ourselves, and uh, it's like, well, how is this going to affect me, and I want this certain lifestyle, and it's just like you make such a small world for yourself uh, just thinking of your own wants. And especially with uh, children with Down syndrome, because I think what it was like Finland or something, they're almost bragging about how they basically eliminated Down syndrome in that country because every single one was aborted. And it's just, I mean, it's so sad. It's just they don't realize what they've lost, what they've taken away from themselves. And it's just, everybody thinks they have these nice, modern, civilized societies, and it's just, it's empty and hollow and it's for nothing. And uh, if if you're not for, you know, if you don't really value life, because they like to think they do, but it, it's from, you can see from the actions, not really. It's it's always about themselves in the end. And, and to me, that that's, that's one that's always challenged, both as a husband and especially as a father, is learning not to just be about yourself. <laughs> I guess that's something to explore a bit in superego. It's like a, He's a psychopath, but can he actually care about other people? And uh, in a way, you know, we all have this journey to become, try to be uh, more than just about ourselves. And, you know, as, as a Christian, uh, you know, it's not just thinking of others, but trying to be what you're supposed to be, what, what God wants you to be. And that's, you know, that's the ultimate journey. Amen. 
Well, Frank, where can our listeners find you online? Twitter's my, uh, I'd say my, my choice of poison in social media. <laughs> I, I, I try to try to be a bright spot myself and not be too down on there. You just search for Frank J. Fleming. You'll find me though. It's, it's like IMAO underscore is what I had to <laughs> settle on as my, uh, handle. And then, uh, you can go to frankjfleming.com, link my books there, link to my Twitter, uh, also my newsletter. If you want to sign up for book updates. And as I understand it, you're writing a third book in the Super Ego series right now. Yeah, so I, I wrote the first Super Ego. I, I thought I'd left the ending ambiguous. I wasn't sure we were going to do a sequel, but uh, it wasn't ambiguous. Everybody was asking about a sequel. But I, I put that off for a bit. And so it's, it's like five years later, I finally put out Super Ego Fathom. It's my fourth novel. Now it's like uh, I, I want to kind of make up for that. I'm trying to get the next ones. I, I think there'll be four books in the for the entire story arc. I'm uh, written most of the third one so far and i think my plan is i might do a sequel to hellbender and then write the fourth one to super ego very good well frank thanks for coming on the show today it's great to have you and uh, we'll see you around on twitter and elsewhere okay thanks thanks so much for having me Zach, that was great. I'm really glad you got to talk with him, even if I was tied up with things related to moving and book releasing and buying a fridge and vainly seeking bookshelves at Ikea. Listeners, if you have a favorite Babylon Bee headline or another work of fantastical satire that helped you see yourself or the world, this crazy world in a different light, let us know. You can post a comment on our website, lorehaven.com slash podcast, the page for this episode. We have a feedback form down there. Or if you've got an email software handy, just send us a note at podcast at lorehaven.com. Of course, you can always tag us on Twitter at Lorehaven or on the Facebook page at Lorehaven Mag. And we're going to do another regional shout out today. We have a number of listeners in the UK. Uh, myself, I've been to England uh, several times, and so that's always a special place for us to go back to. But if you are a listener in the UK, please send us a message. Tell us. How did you first discover fantastical stories or what's something from one of our episodes that's resonated with you or this question that Steven just asked? We'd love to hear from you. Podcast at lorehaven.com. Next on Fantastical Truth, I have mentioned the book. I shall be mentioning it again because my first book, a nonfiction project with co-authors Ted Turneau and Jared Moore, releases for real from New Growth Press on September the 7th, 2020 just a couple of weeks away as we record this. And we will feature a two-part episode exploring some key themes from this book, The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. In that first episode, we will ask, what if popular culture was actually God's idea all along? And contrast that question, which not a lot of people ask about the purpose of popular culture, with some of the overreactions that Christians can have, either assuming that popular culture is mostly bad or mostly good, or we just throw up our hands and go, it's neutral. If you've listened to this podcast long enough, uh, we are so strict. We're such legalists. We actually don't think there's a whole lot of room for neutrality. We would like to explore this question from a biblical vantage. We invite you to join in for this very important conversation. Meanwhile, if you're laughing at your world, keep it in good nature. Make sure especially that you're practicing biblical humility by laughing at yourself as God intended, but also in a good nature. Open your eyes and see the comedy in the world that God has made, and in particularly the failings of humans, even as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.